COVID-19 transmission appears to be down in the U.S., though those numbers may overlook several communities where COVID-19 is still on the rise. Kano, Nigeria, Mumbai, India, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Worldwide, hotspots are beginning to emerge in low-income countries. Meanwhile, at the World Health Assembly, more than 120 countries have signed on to request an independent inquiry into China's initial handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. COVID-19 is the first truly global infectious disease pandemic in over a century. Already, it has infected nearly 5 million people and taken nearly 320,000 lives across 213 countries worldwide. But the last time a disease gripped the world's attention it was the West African Ebola epidemic. This is the end game in Liberia. A medical team hunting for the final traces of Ebola. From infected Ebola patients in Guinea to some of the world's most advanced laboratories here in Paris, they are trying to find out why this particular outbreak has killed so many. Like COVID-19 today, at that time, there was no vaccine or effective treatment for Ebola. Between 2013 and 2016, it took 11,323 lives of 28,646 people it infected, the vast majority in Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea. Although in total, it only spread to 10 countries overall. Both Ebola and COVID-19 captured the media's undivided attention for weeks, but only one of them went on to become a global pandemic. Why? There are a number of key differences between them. First, Though it's really contagious, Ebola is nowhere near as contagious as coronavirus. Ebola is spread by direct contact with bodily fluids, where COVID can travel in tiny little droplets in the air. Epidemiologists measure the transmissibility of an infectious disease using a number called r naught. It estimates the average number of new cases per individual case. That number is just a bit higher for COVID than it is for Ebola. But small differences in r naught can make big differences in spread. Here's why. If R0 was 2, then every person would give it to 2 people, who'd give it to 2 people, who'd give it to 2 people, and so on. Using the R0 values for Ebola and COVID-19, we can calculate how many people would get the disease after 10 generations. For Ebola, it would be 613 people. For COVID-19, it's 15 times higher, 9,537 people. Second, Ebola and COVID-19 have similar incubation periods, meaning the mean time between when someone is infected and when they develop symptoms. But COVID is far more likely to be asymptomatic. In fact, it's unclear if Ebola is ever asymptomatic, and asymptomatic carriers are a big problem when it comes to spreading the disease. But Ebola is way deadlier than COVID-19 per individual. Ebola kills nearly 50% of people who are infected. Though we're not exactly sure what the mortality rate is with COVID, because we don't know how many people are asymptomatic, it's far less deadly per person. But because of how fast and how far it spreads, it's already killed many more people than Ebola did back in 2013 through 2016. But here's the biggest difference, our third and final point. It's not just differences between the two viruses themselves, but how we as humans respond. The global response to Ebola was slower in coming than it should have been, Ultimately, President Obama deployed the U.S. Army to build field hospitals across the affected countries, and an army of contact tracers were deployed to contain the virus. But it was contained. And following those failures, a number of proactive steps were taken. 
The CDC launched the Global Health Security Agenda Network of 49 outposts across the world to ascertain and respond to emerging pandemic threats. A pandemic playbook was written and a pandemic response unit was established in the White House to make sure it got executed. And everyone knew something like this was coming. Here's Dr. Anthony Fauci in 2017. There is no question that there will be a challenge to the coming administration in the arena of infectious diseases, both chronic infectious diseases in the sense of already ongoing disease, and we have certainly a large burden of that, but also there will be a surprise outbreak. And yet, none of those things happened when it came to COVID. Today, I talked to two leaders who lived through Ebola about that experience and what we should have learned from it. Dr. Craig Spencer is an emergency room doctor at New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. He's emerged as one of the most important voices from the front lines of the COVID-19 response. The first time I heard Dr. Spencer's name, though, was when he made headlines during the Ebola epidemic as one of only four Americans who got the disease. For over five weeks, I worked in an Ebola treatment center in Gekadu, the epicenter of the outbreak. During this time, I cried as I held children who were not strong enough to survive the virus. But I also experienced immense joy when patients I treated were cured and invited me into their family as a brother upon discharge. He joined me to share his insights about Ebola, the American response, and COVID-19. I want to uh, jump right in. So you were on the front lines in the Ebola epidemic and now on COVID-19. Um, how do they compare? I've spent so much time thinking about this, and my conclusion is that they're both incredibly different and really eerily similar. When we think back to Ebola, you know, what we remember from five, six years ago in that big outbreak in West Africa, it was contained. There wasn't a huge risk of kind of massive global spread. We knew that there was going to be cases in a bunch of different places because people from all over the world were responding, but we all knew that this wasn't going to be this global outbreak. At one point, I think the majority of people in the United States thought that they would know someone in their communities that would get this. We knew that that wasn't likely. Um, in terms of Ebola as well, we knew that the mortality for that was unfortunately really high and we didn't have any therapeutics at that time. It was scary. But when you think on COVID now, what I've been telling people, in some ways it's so similar, but it's also the exact opposite. This coronavirus is, is truly the perfect virus. It works really well. It doesn't kill a lot of people um, relative, you know, maybe, you know, half or one or 2% of people it infects. It spreads so well um, by asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people. This is actually what we really worried about. You know, for all the people that worried about Ebola, the thing that we were actually worried about in kind of the public health and pandemic preparedness world was something like coronavirus and knew that it was only a matter of time. Mm. And You've been on the front lines of this at, at New York Presbyterian, and can you walk us through what a day in the life at the height of this pandemic looked like? And then you also were a um, provider during Ebola. What was that like, and, and can you compare and contrast them? When we were, gosh, about a month ago, I would say, was when things were the worst here, and I was at work overnight last night talking to one of my colleagues, and we were trying to describe it. it Walking into the emergency department was, quite frankly, like walking into the apocalypse. Remember one day I, I walked in and in spots where we normally have 11 patients, we had, you know, 25 or 30. Half of them were intubated on mechanical ventilation. Everyone on three to four, you know, IV drip, sedation, blood pressure support, etc. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I'd seen despair. I'd seen death. Obviously in West Africa... Um, our days were long. We'd spend a lot of time 
in hot personal protective equipment, get really dehydrated, drink a lot of fluid to try to catch up and see people who were fine in the morning that ended up dying in the afternoon. I think there's so many similarities between what we saw, you know, thankfully our big outbreak and really kind of the, the peak of this has passed, at least for now. Uh, in West Africa, this was months and months. It was actually, you know, over a couple of years that we were dealing with Ebola cases, people dying at the doors of treatment centers. So there's a lot of similarities, but really on a daily basis, it's for us, it was not having enough staff, worrying about personal protective equipment, worrying about ourselves and what happened if we got infected. We had so many people that were exposed, so many people that got sick and were out. It was both physically exhausting and mentally exhausting. And that's I think really the most profound similarity between what we saw with COVID here in New York City and what we experienced every single day in West Africa during Ebola, this profound and persistent physical exhaustion combined with this mental exhaustion, which leaves you vulnerable to error, which leaves you vulnerable to infection. Hmm. Um, I remember uh, when you were infected with Ebola. I remember because uh, I had to talk about it on the news and... Um, the media's response to that experience was in some ways a harbinger of what has happened here with the infodemic, um, both the horrific misinformation that we see and also uh, the denialism and the politicization. You were in the middle of all that. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure you spent a lot of time thinking about it and speaking about it. Um, can, can you talk to us about how our public's perspective on Ebola versus COVID have both differed and, and maybe how one has set up the other? I had so many concerns with how we responded really as kind of from a media standpoint, as well as from a political standpoint to Ebola in 2014, not just to my illness, but even really in West Africa. If you remember all of the messages that were maligning West Africans, you know, blaming the spread on their culture for things like the fact that they can't stay under quarantine, it can't be that hard. Just, you know, this is the thing that's going to stop this, this virus. Why can't people just stay at home for a bit? Or maligning the fact that West Africans can't stop having these huge funerals. Both of these points of which I think we've seen so much here in the United States in terms of trying to manage the spread of the virus. So I think that's something that we maligned in West Africans, but what we've really celebrated here in the United States. Um, that's one thing I, I think we set up also that, you know, that was a weird time when I was in the hospital, it was October. It was, you know, right before an election in early November and politicians were super happy to jump on top of my infection to undermine the authority of the president and other politicians. I remember one headline saying that ISIS was thinking about um, infecting some ISIS members with Ebola and pushing them across the Mexican border. Like it was just pure craziness. And the unfortunate thing was that that's what caught on. You know, the people with the loudest voices were the ones that fanned the flames. I'm certainly biased in my perspective because so much of the media in 2014 was about me. But I know that it was poor. We spent more time focused on whether Ebola can be transferred by a bowling ball as opposed to talking about what was happening in West Africa and the real public health principles. In contrast to that, I'd actually say that our response, at least from a media perspective, not a political one, but from a media one, has probably been significantly better this time around. What I've noticed is that public health professionals and frontline providers have become 
a little clique of celebrities, like they're on CNN, we're on Fox News, we're on so many different programs that quite frankly, we haven't been before because people right now, when they're being confronted with this virus themselves, it's not in West Africa, it's here in our communities, want to know real information. And they're not getting it from their politicians, they're not getting it from task force uh, meetings, which are more propaganda than public health information. People really want to know what the reality is, what I'm seeing, what my colleagues are seeing, and how we get through this. And that's why I think we've seen frontline providers and public health professionals really step up, get on radio, get on TV. And I think because of that, we have faces like mine and yours on more than we do a lot of other politicians. And people are getting the information that they need that is based on public health, not just on you know political imperatives. You've, in your career, repeatedly put yourself on the front lines. And um, I just want to ask, you know, what motivates you and uh, what scares you about that? I think what's motivated me is that I see the world as really a local and a global community. I also recognize, again, that a public health threat in, you know, Central African Republic can become a public health problem here in the United States as well. I think there's not a wall big enough that we can build to keep these viruses out. I think if anything has shown that, we've learned that in the past couple of months, the likelihood that this virus came from Europe um, and that a lot of our outbreaks are, are fueled by European um, in, you know, uh, cases as opposed to those from China. Um, I, I think that that is, uh, is a really huge message um, that we are a global community, that we all need to be in this together, even if you don't necessarily agree with the global message itself. Like, it's just undeniable. This is the way our world is built and this is the way that viruses see us. They don't see borders that were created 120 years ago, 130 years ago at a conference in, in Berlin. Um, so I think that's really important. For me, I just see this personal and really professional moral, moral imperative for us to respond. Uh, really, really appreciate your insights and your work and your leadership in this moment. I'm grateful that there are people who are uh, out there fighting that. And thank you for being one of them. Likewise. Thanks so much for educating us all and sharing this incredibly important message. Next, we'll talk to Ron Klain, President Obama's Ebola czar, about his experience in COVID-19 today, after the break. My guest today is Ron Klain. He uh, was the Ebola czar under President Obama, uh, and he is probably one of the only people alive who uh, has a sense of an understanding of taking on an infectious disease epidemic at a scale similar to this. Um, the, the insights and perspective will be really, really helpful for us as we think about uh, the contrast here. Ron, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Um, I wanted to to jump right in. Uh, you know, you have this rare experience of having taken on uh, an epidemic of a proportion similar to this one, and um, I want to I want to ask you, you you led the Ebola response. What did we get right, and what did we get wrong then? Well, look, I think there are four things we got right that have gone very wrong right now. The first is that we put science and medical expertise first. Uh, I'm not a doctor, not a healthcare expert, but when President Obama brought me in to coordinate the response, he said to me, look, we're going to let the scientists, we're going to let the doctors, they're going to make the strategic decisions. Your job, Ron, is to turn their recommendations into action, to make the government work uh, under their guidance. So science, medicine was first, uh, not politics, 
not Jared Kushner's friends, you know, science and medicine first. And I think that was the first thing we got right that's different here. Second is that President Obama was really determined to put the whole government behind it. He had what he called the whole of government response. We not only put 10,000 civilians on the ground in West Africa to fight this disease, we put 3,000 troops on the ground in West Africa to fight this disease, the first ever deployment of U.S. troops to fight an epidemic. We used every federal agency, used every authority he had to fight this fight back then. And I think President Trump's been much more reluctant to take on COVID. He's constantly saying the federal government's not a shipping clerk or this isn't really our problem. It's up to the states and so on and so forth. And so I think that's a second thing that has gone wrong here that we got right back in 2014. The third thing is we had really clear organization. Uh, I was the person who was coordinating the response. Uh, you know, my contribution was coordination. We had a great, amazing team, but everyone knew in the end uh, where it was all being coordinated. Here, we've seen this rolling carousel of of leaders, of Alex Azar first, and then Pence, and then Burks, and now Jared Kushner seems to be in charge. No one knows who's in charge. It's a, it's a mess. And then the fourth thing is we believed the government could solve the problem. The government could be a force for good to save lives in West Africa, to protect people here at home. And here what we've read is that Jared Kushner uh, you know, brought in a bunch of uh, policy consultants or business consultants and asked them, young kids, to kind of run the response and not no trust for the expertise, no trust for the people who are in government, no ability and belief in government. That ideology, which we've seen for so long from people like Trump, really has been a huge part of the failed response here now. That is uh, that is really helpful and, and, and quite concise. So uh, to, to reiterate, I want to unpack some of these points. Uh, you had a science-led response that was coordinated centrally. You believed government could be a part of the solution and needed to be a part of the solution, and then you put the whole of government behind it. Yeah, then that, I was concise or more concise. That is, that is it in a nutshell. I want to I want to ask you because you know these things seem so simple, right? So so obvious. I I um, ran a health department in 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 Detroit, and you know it, it seems very I don't know better word to say is just linear, right? It's like it seems like an obvious thing, right? I, I have a puzzle, I want to solve a puzzle. Um, and uh, why has it been so hard uh, to get that kind of response from uh, this administration? So I think you know um, you and I whatever our political differences inside the progressive movement are, you know, see the world in a certain kind of way. And I think Donald Trump and his allies see the world in a different way. He's always viewed this as PR, not really substance. His idea of what the coronavirus response is, is it's a, a press conference every day, not really fighting the disease. I think that's one big difference. Secondly, I think their ideological hatred of government, their disbelief that the people working in the government can really make a difference uh, has led to this crazy strategy where they just push aside experts and bring in uh, you know, business consultants to try to start from scratch when there's a lot of this that the government has great expertise in. And I think that's, I think that's ideology. And then there's just the kind of the harsh politics of it. Trump's desire to put his political cronyism and his and his, his affinity for his political allies ahead of doing the right thing. His, his bickering with uh, Democratic governors, his desire to see uh, you know, his, his 
buddies, get contracts for different things. All these things have put politics ahead of health. And then, you know, he just uh, has had always a hostile relationship with science, whether that's around climate change or his dabbling with the anti-vaccine movement um, or now in, in, you know, fighting with the experts at the CDC and uh, with other experts here on this. So I think, I think it's, it's a, this is really a bunch of things that have always been true about Trump that are getting exposed when they're really subjected to this crisis. You know, the crisis brings out the best and worst in all of us. And what we're seeing is things that have always been true about Trump and Trump's presidency in extreme, in an extreme situation. Yeah, and, and the frustrating thing is that, you know, the, the rest of government seems like they want to do their job. I'm connected to a lot of folks at the CDC and, you know, they're working really hard to try and do the right thing. But it this moment really highlights the critical role of leadership because without it, um, not only do do poor leaders, you know, fail to mount the generative response that you want, but they just confuse the kind of response that that could occur even if there was no leader there in the first place. And you can almost imagine that, like, if there was no... Trump effect at all. And there was no president um, that uh, the agencies in government probably could figure out how to coordinate this thing. But it's just that, you know, there is this interruption uh, of the need to placate this short term political interests, this focus on PR that um, is just it just every day foils the best goals and the best intentions of the folks who have to work in government underneath him. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, you know, I still stay in touch with some of my former colleagues from the Ebola response who are career people who are still in these agencies, and they're trying very hard, and they're doing their best. But, I mean, in the end, uh, something like this does require leadership. And that leadership can either point in the right direction or the wrong one. It can either be helpful and empowering of that talent, or it can be demoralizing and disabling of that talent. And I think we've seen obviously too much of the wrong direction, not enough of the right direction. And coming out of the Ebola response, um, you all didn't just focus on tamping down the response. You also wanted to uh, use that experience as a sort of stress test. What did government need to build inside of it to be ready for the next one? Can you talk a little bit about institutionally what that looked like and had it all worked as it was supposed to? Maybe what the world would have would have looked like right now? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, at the end of the Ebola response, we um, had reduced cases. I left when we had cases down to five cases a week. Um, and some of my colleagues stayed and we, you know, got it, they got it down to zero. But we all recognized that um, whatever our successes had been, uh, we had been too late. A lot of people had died. And if we'd gotten there sooner, we might have been able to pre- prevent more of that. And that more importantly, what we realized was that... Um, another thing like this would come. Mm. People have now seen on the internet the past few weeks a little clip of President Obama giving a speech in the middle of the Ebola response in December of 2014 at the National Institutes of Health where he said in that speech, you know, five years from now we could face some kind of pandemic, like a flu-like thing that would come to the United States and we need to be ready for it. And people have seen that clip and they've said, you know, this is, he predicted this. Well, yeah, I mean, we saw that something like this would come and we wanted to be ready for it. So we said what we would do is we would create a pandemic response office inside the White House that would be preparing our country for something like what we're going through now. When President Obama set that up in early 2016, he said, let's write a playbook and leave it for the next administration, what to do if something like this happens. And we and the 
people who worked on it did write such a playbook and left it behind, along with an analysis of what had worked on the Ebola response. And all that was left behind for President Trump. Now, what's interesting is that for the first year he was president, he kept a lot of that in place. But then in 2018, when John Bolton took over the National Security Council, he disbanded the uh, Pandemic Preparation and Response Unit. He sent most of the people away from the White House. They obviously paid no attention to the pandemic playbook that we had left them. And the consequences of that have been enormous. I mean, if we'd had a dedicated team inside the White House working away on preparation, they would have sounded the alarms early about what was going on in China. They would have begun to order the test kits that we've never had in this country. They would have begun to order the protective gear that our healthcare workers still lack. They would have done all the things that the playbook said they were supposed to do. And instead, none of those things happened. And that's a big reason why we're in the mess we're in right now. The points that you raise really point to the critical role of federal leadership. And can you talk a little bit about um, what what the next president, uh, you know, and, and uh, we, you and I both agree on who that needs to be right now. Um, uh, but can you talk about what, a little bit of what, you know, Joe Biden, if he's elected in, in, in the fall, when he's elected in the fall, uh, what is he going to face and what kinds of uh, leadership are we going to need to see both in uh, the direct term to take to take on COVID nineteen specifically, but then more broadly to take on the the dire economic consequences that it has caused in our society. Yeah. So, look, I certainly hope that the disease is under control by the time he becomes president on January twentieth. I certainly hope the economy is in better shape on January twentieth. I am hoping for the best, like every American. There's a lot of reason to believe that that's not what we're going to find when he becomes president on January 20th. And so, as you said, job number one is going to be getting this disease under control. I mean, uh, as long as people are afraid, reasonably afraid, that if they go to stores and restaurants, they're going to get sick, as long as workers are afraid that if they do their jobs, they're going to get sick, there's going to be an overhang over our economy that all the cheerleading by President Trump can't make go away. So the health issue isn't separate from the economic issue. It isn't some choice, some let's do health or economy, one or the other. It's the central piece of getting this economy fixed. Because when people are scared, they don't shop, they don't work, they don't do all these things. And so we got to deal with that. And that means that if this is still raging in January of 2021, President uh, Biden would uh, do the kinds of things I've been talking about, which is he would put science and medicine first. He'd throw the full power of the federal government behind finishing the job here, doing what we need to do. He'd make sure that we have ubiquitous testing, widespread testing, not just a few hundred thousand tests a day, but millions of tests a week, whatever needs to happen to get this under control. He'd make sure that we're uh, protecting our doctors, our nurses, our workers, uh, making sure that there are standards for the ways in which people should work to keep them safe on the job, to keep consumers safe out in the economy. And of course, he'd finish the job on uh, doing whatever will need still to be done in terms of uh, getting uh, therapeutics in place, getting new diagnostics in place, and ultimately getting a vaccine in place, widely distributed, widely administered, uh, all for free to those who need the vaccine. And so, you know, that's, I think, the healthcare agenda. Look, on the economic agenda, 
I don't want to get too far ahead of the vice president because he's going to have some statements about this in the days ahead. But clearly, I think the biggest change is going to be uh, putting working people in the middle class first. You know, we've seen every economic decision this president's made since day one has been about those at the top. And we're seeing the consequences of this right now in this crisis. I mean, the, the crisis hasn't just uh, been the trigger of a real economic collapse in our country. It's revealed existing problems that we've had that have come to the forefront. And, uh, you know, those existing problems are that, you know, just too much of the focus these past three years have been on those at the very top. And as a result, we see that some people are riding out this crisis uh, as well as they can, while others are in these mind-numbingly long lines we see on TV Mm. every day, waiting in their cars for hours to get a box of food. I mean, scenes we haven't really seen in this country since the Great Depression. That's right. And uh, and we really need to make sure uh, that we have uh, an economic philosophy that um, that puts those people first, uh, that puts uh, working people, middle class people first. That's going to be the key to getting the economy going again. Well, I, I really appreciate that perspective, and I think you're right. There's just going to be almost um, we like you said we we all hope. Um, that we have stabilized, and this is largely behind us by then. Um, you know, the epidemiologist in me uh, doesn't see that. And so, you know, thinking about almost putting a paddle uh, to, to shock the American economy back into existence is, is something really big. I, um, we always ask uh, our guests, how are you spending these days uh, in, 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 in this, this quarantine moment uh, in a time a lot of challenge and, and, and frustration? Well, I mean, I'm fortunate to be home with uh, my family. Uh, my three adult children uh, have left their homes and are sheltering here with us. And um, knock wood, we're all healthy and well. Um, you know, I spend my days like a lot of other people. I'm working from home uh, and then also speaking out uh, as I can on this COVID crisis and trying to make my voice heard about what I think is going wrong with the response, what I think we need to do differently. It's a it's a very, very difficult time. I feel like my family has been very fortunate in this difficult time and uh, doing whatever we can to try to help help other people as well. We appreciated uh, your leadership then. We appreciate your leadership now. Um, and uh, we, uh, we know it's at stake in November and uh, there's a big responsibility we have to take it on. So um, thank you for your fight and um, uh, for, for the work that you've done, the work that you will do. Uh, look forward to continuing uh, what I know is going to be both a vigorous debate and uh, a lot of partnership um, to, to, to make this world more just and equitable. So thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. As always, here's what I'm watching right now. As some of the world's biggest cities in major lower and middle income countries start to experience major COVID-19 outbreaks without nearly the resources available in countries like the U.S. or the U.K., How will their leaders and societies cope? Meanwhile, over 120 countries have joined together in a call for an inquiry into the Chinese government's early handling of COVID-19. How will this shape global politics around COVID-19? And how will that shape our ability to respond, particularly if there's a second major wave? If you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. 
production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takeya Suzawa and Alex Fugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.